Hello, welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. My name is Hannah Phillips, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Audrey Lochteff and Jason Rankins, and we are pleased to present this episode with you all. Roundhouse Crosstalk's podcast is a platform we use to amplify the stories of people whose jobs, experiences, and legacy intersect with the history of the railroad. In our next few episodes, we are focusing on the stories of Black railroad workers. Black Americans worked in many jobs on the railroad, including as porters, dining car attendants, waiters, cooks, maids, and redcaps on the railroad. Black railroad workers were often limited to service-type jobs with little access to job mobility. They faced many poor working conditions, including lack of job security, low wages, long hours, and daily racial discrimination from passengers. Despite this, Black railroad workers organized and demanded better working conditions, ultimately leading to the formation of the United States' first Black labor union in 1925, the Brotherhood of the Sleeping Car Porters. This episode, Jason Rankins, our guide to supervisor at the California State Railroad Museum, will be speaking with Dr. Max Geyer, an emeritus professor of history at Western Oregon University. Dr. Geyer is also the author of the book, The Color of the Night, Race, Railroaders, and Murder in the Wartime West. The book investigates the trial and conviction of Robert Folks, a labor organizer and civil rights activist who served as a railroad cook during World War II in the Pacific Northwest. Dr. Geyer also discusses how the Pullman Company started and the formation of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello, Dr. Geyer. Welcome to our podcast. Hello, thank written, you for having me. I appreciate it. You've written on many topics, including uh, the railroad, and we're excited to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining us, and please tell the audience a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was born in northern Minnesota, um, started teaching at Western Oregon University in Monmouth, Oregon, in rural Willamette Valley, Oregon, near Salem, near the state capital, um, in the early 1990s, and did my entire career as a professor there, and uh, became emeritus professor about the time this book came out in 2015. I spent quite a bit of time in my um, research before that, or after that, um, looking at railroads and railroad development and its impact on railroad communities um, throughout the American West, but especially in um, Washington State and in Canada and Alberta, actually. Okay, thank you. Can you contextualize for our audience the types of roles Black Americans held on the railroad and how they might have access to these positions? Yeah, so... The important thing about railroads um, is the history of racial segregation in the United States, and especially the um, Jim Crow laws that actually made it illegal um, to share accommodations across state lines. And then railroads introduced this paradox of interstate travel. Um, so a few things, the Civil War is a watershed and um, after the Civil War, large numbers of freedmen in the South were looking for opportunities. And about the same time, George Pullman was creating this image of a luxury car that people could travel in, and a, a railroad car. And he was having a hard time selling it until Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. As a result of that 
assassination, um, the state of Illinois wanted to bring Lincoln's body back in the state. And so they hired one of these white elephant cars that George Pullman had come up with. He was having trouble marketing them. And real, uh, the Lincoln funeral cortege that went along all the railroad routes on the way to um, his final resting place, that was a Pullman car. And that created an opening for George Pullman. A lot of people saw the car, and um, as a result of that, this company began to produce these what they called the uh, Pullman Palace cars uh, as a um, luxury accommodation, sleeping accommodation. And so a few curiosities here. Um, Robert Todd Lincoln, uh, the son of the dead president, eventually becomes the president and CEO of the Pullman Company. Um, so George Pullman, of course, is the founder, but there's this connection of the Pullman Company to this period of emancipation. Um, and the joke is that Lincoln freed the slaves and George Pullman hired them or gave them a job. So the problem with railroads as it relates to black Americans and their opportunity for jobs is that the job market was segregated on the railroads between white jobs and black jobs. And there were very few jobs that were available to black workers um, because of the structure of segregation that was introduced with the founding of the railroads. And so, for example, Pullman porters became one of the best opportunities for black workers on railroads. Dining car cooks um, was another one, and dining car waiters was another one. Um, car cleaners for women, um, the cars that passenger cars and Pullman cars had to be cleaned after they were used. And so black women gained opportunities as domestic workers uh, in those cars. Red caps, the most stereotypical case, I suppose, um, at railroad terminals across the country where um, black men gained opportunities to help move luggage of mostly white passengers. So those were not all, but most of the opportunities that were available. And on the other side, white workers found a great deal of opportunities. And so, for example, car maintenance shops where railroad uh, equipment was repaired. That was mostly a white preserve. Very few until quite a bit later. Um, that was mostly off limits to most black workers. Conductors, stewards on the dining cars, um, engineers, firemen, brakemen, telegraph operators, and one of the worst categories in terms of their organized racist resistance to integration was the um, Brotherhood of Railroad Clerks. So men, white men who worked um, as clerks for the railroads in all kinds of capacities, organized into a guild brotherhood that prohibited black entry. And so the skilled positions um, were off limits for the most part um, to black workers. And so the, the best opportunity in the early years up through the um, World War II um, was Pullman Porters. And um, Pullman Porters then became the focus of African-American communities in railroad towns and cities across the country. And they became the foundation for what becomes known as the black middle class. These were career level jobs. They required a certain amount of training uh, and skill. And they were jobs that came with an appearance of status and authority 
um, especially within the black community, this was a desired position. They didn't pay well. They paid about $62 a month. And so porters had to make up the difference between that wage and what was expected of them through tips. And tips range between $100 to $300 a month. Um, so the vast majority of their income actually came from tips. But they had access to opportunity to earn fairly good money compared to an average worker in the uh, post-Civil War South, um, where they were really restricted because of racial segregation and the debt peonage system that was introduced um, after the Civil War, and then, of course, um, reinforced with the Jim Crow system by the 1890s. And then one other important aspect here, um, all of these careers for African-Americans in the railroad system were really dead-end jobs. He started out as a Pullman porter, and there was nowhere to go. You were going to be, that was, that was it. your entry-level position was your finishing-level position. Later, after, mostly after World War II, it became possible for some porters to move into the um, Pullman conductor roles, but very rarely, mostly the Pullman conductor, which is the man who actually controls on each train, uh, manages the porter staff, that conductor was always a white man. Um, so even that one step up into the supervisory role was off limits to most black workers. Um, but the Pullman porter played a really important role as a pipeline of migration. Uh, because from their base, most of them were based in Chicago, not all, but that was the largest concentration of Pullman porters. And from Chicago, if you look at a map of railroads, it, um, it's like your hand stretching out across the United States. There's a line going everywhere. And Pullman porters brought information and news um, from Chicago to outlying areas all across the United States as they went. People gave them newspapers, um, information, local news, and they took that with them and they distributed a long line to other people that wouldn't have otherwise had access to news. Um, and they gave them information about how to apply, how to become a Pullman porter, how to go to Chicago, how to get a job with Pullman, how to go to the Pullman um, town and um, find opportunities there, whether it was for um, one of these domestic roles or whatever. So, so these um, Pullman porters and railroad jobs began to break down the barriers that trapped people in debt peonage and began to give them just a narrow window of opportunity to get out. Um, I think the question also asked about connections with Oregon, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Um, is there a, a special connection for uh, black railroad workers in uh, Oregon? So Oregon, all the things I've been talking about apply in spades. Um, Oregon, um, from its founding in 1859, had a black exclusion clause in the Constitution, and it remained there until 1926. And what it said was that no black person could legally live in Oregon. Um, 1859 to 1926, a long time. Uh, so, but the problem was <laughs> um, people moved through Oregon a lot. 
on trains. So three major railroad lines came through Portland. That was a conjunction point at um, Union Station in Portland. And so you had the Northern Pacific Line, the Southern Pacific Line, and the um, Union Pacific Line. And so Portland was a transfer point. Trains came in from all over. They brought Pullman cars. Um, Pullman cars were working black people. By the way, something that I should probably mention, um, besides Pullman porters, one of the important aspects of the Pullman car was the Pullman maid, which doesn't get a lot of attention, um, but women worked as attendants on the Pullman cars, and uh, African-American women primarily, not exclusively, but mostly. And, um, and they were also part of the um, effort to organize a, um, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. It was originally an organization of porters and maids um, in the early incarnations. So anyway, these um, trains would come through Portland and there'd be transfers of personnel and cargo and passengers and so forth. And so although there were the exclusion laws and sundown laws that prohibited sundown laws in Oregon, almost every small town in every major city had a, I mean, every small town for sure in most larger towns and cities had laws that prohibited a black person from being in that city or town after sundown. And so as late as 1944 in Albany, Oregon, which at that time was a town of about 5,000 people, there was only one black person that we know of who lived in that town. And he was the um, person that ran a shoeshine shop near the courthouse, and he was allowed to stay there. We find out in other places like Corvallis, for example, um, there were a number of black people living there. But what these sundown laws did and what these and what the prohibition on residents did um, was it forced black people who wanted to remain there to keep a low profile because they could be evicted at any time. And so if you talk to locals about it, you know, they're like, oh, these laws were there, but they weren't that important because everybody liked these people. Well, of course, because if the person wasn't someone that the local people liked, they would be kicked out and it could happen. So, um, so Portland as the transfer hub became very important as a place where because railroads needed them, black workers began to congregate and build community despite the fact that they were not allowed to be even in the state. Um, you had, by the way, right across the river in Washington, a very different situation. There was no legal prohibition against being in Washington, um, but up through 1926, you couldn't be in Oregon. So Oregon was um, in some ways more extreme than other states in terms of its um, discriminatory practices, which is actually contrary to the image that most Oregonians have of themselves. And so the trains running from Los Angeles up to Seattle, most of them, turned, uh, the crews mostly turned around in Portland and spent about six to eight hours in Portland. Um, and the trains themselves continued on and came back down, but that conduit of people from South Central Los Angeles for the Southern, Southern Pacific had their um, main terminal down there along 12th and South Central, um, up through Sacramento, where you guys are, 
um, in Northern California, up through Klamath Falls, which is a main center of Southern migration into Oregon. Um, and then from Klamath Falls up through Eugene, Oregon, and up into Portland. And then they got off there. In most of the towns in between there, um, there were usually people in the stations designed to prevent black trade workers from leaving. So, um, and then once they got to Washington, it wasn't paradise, <laughs> but it was um, much more open. And of course, California also had its problems, but if you grew up in South Central Los Angeles during the early 20th century, there was a fair amount of um, community integrity there and freedom of mobility and so forth. And, um, they lost that when they got across the border down there near Klamath Falls until they got out of Portland. So. Um, based on your research, do you think working conditions and experiences of black trainmen in Oregon are representative of railroad workers throughout the country? I think that really there is nothing that happened elsewhere in the country that didn't happen in Oregon. Um, in some ways, um, things were more extreme in Oregon, but I think that for the most part, um, what you see happening in Oregon is a disconnect between what Oregonians wanted to think about themselves in their state and what they actually did. So Oregon isn't, I don't think, unique necessarily in that regard, but I think that because of the mythology of Oregon and the myth of the Oregon Trail, that it created unusual hurdles um, that were different in kind than in other states. Okay. Uh, what are some of the barriers Black railroad workers faced during the early part of the 20th century? And did they have any type of job security during this time? So there was, as I've been trying to stress, there was systematic racism. It was built into the system um, all across the economy. And so job security was rare for African-Americans in the United States in that period because of the pattern in which they tended to be last hired and first fired. The railroad system in particular was built around these white brotherhoods, these guilds of workers in skilled positions that organized against integration and were actually actively campaigning to prevent the organization of African-Americans into um, unions. And the problem was exacerbated by the fact that the American Federation of Labor actually prohibited recruitment of black people into their various unions um, where they're not allowed any upward mobility and that um, made them vulnerable to a practice that economists would refer to as an elastic labor supply. And then they just fire you when, you when they didn't need you anymore. So that elastic labor supply was a major barrier to um, organizing black workers in the railroads because um, they were replaceable. <laughs> there was always somebody else out there looking for their job. And um, 
as we're Pullman reporters had somewhat of an advantage because although um, much of their work was menial labor, actually, um, there were many things about the railroad that required knowledge and understanding and skill to be a Pullman porter. Not It couldn't be just anybody doing that. And so, so the Pullman porter um, gained an opportunity for organized resistance that most black workers were denied because of the fact that they were mostly in much less skilled positions and therefore much more easily replaceable. There was always people looking to be a Pullman porter, but you had to be trained. And, and there was a major difference between how a, a porter with experience managed a car and how a porter who was just learning the job managed that car. It was a matter of efficiency and profitability and customer satisfaction, and the company knew that. And so they, they had this different opportunity that other workers didn't have. The other category in a similar role, not with the Pullman company, um, but with the railroads, was dining car workers. And so if you were a dining car cook, um, or a dining car waiter, these are also, um, or a dining car pantryman, there's another one. Um, these were all positions that were primarily um, reserved for black workers. They paid less than most of the jobs that were available to white workers, but they paid more than most jobs that were available to black workers across the United States in manual labor. And um, like the porters, it took a, a great deal of skill to manage the art of cooking um, in a moving rail car. And it took skill to manage the art of carrying a full tray of food to the tables in a dining car that's rolling down the tracks, you know? So, um, and so a, a skilled waiter um, could make, mostly through tips, by the way, um, could make almost as much as a Pullman porter a dining car cook um, didn't have opportunities for wages, um, and so they tended to be actually paid more in terms of wage salary than a um, than a waiter, but they made less in the end. But they had a certain amount of status because of their independence from the tip-seeking role that these other um, categories of labor had. And so, um, so they also organized. Um, we hear a lot about the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, but there was also a Brotherhood of Dining Car Workers, um, which was the early forerunner for what eventually becomes a, um, the AFL-affiliated um, uh, Dining Car Workers Union in later years. Um, so the elastic labor supply, the um, tendency to hire black workers only in these unskilled positions, um, the racism of other railroad workers. And then Jim Crow laws. Um, it was difficult because of Jim Crow laws to work across state lines. And um, they couldn't stop the trains from bringing black people across the border, but it limited what you were able to do in certain areas because of the um, uh, Jim Crow requirements. And then also um, when trying to gain employment opportunities, um, if the state law requires that separate accommodations be provided for black people and white people, it means that they have to spend more money to make the, they, meaning the railroad companies, but also the um, people who manage the um, 
train stations, they have to spend more money to make these different accommodations available. And um, if you worked in a Jim Crow state, you didn't have that problem um, necessarily. So, so the, there's another barrier to um, working railroads for black people. Can you, uh, can you tell us how did black railroad workers first organize to fight against unfair labor laws and the lack of job security? Um, how did they build the first labor union in the country? Yeah, so um, it's a complex process and it has a lot to do with the rural to urban migration I was talking about before. So there's a beginning in the early 1900s, but especially during and after World War I with the great migration to the north, this, these radical traditions of rural southern farmers brought into places like Chicago. And they bring this tradition of organizing across class lines, industrial organization, they bring it into the center of the Pullman Empire. In the 1920s, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and the Brotherhood of Dining Car Workers are the two leading organizations to try and build bridges. And what's important again is that they're part of this railroad network that reaches out into every state. And so they're based in Chicago, but they expand outward and they establish nodes of development, especially in places like Oakland, California, um, and in um, South Central Los Angeles, these two important nodes. In the mid-1920s, you have um, a couple of major pieces of legislation that are passed. Um, the uh, Watson Parker Act in 1926 um, officially recognized the right of railroad workers to collective bargaining. A. Philip Randolph was hired to lead the Brotherhood um, and try and establish it as a collective bargaining group. And this starts in um, 1925. It's usually identified as the um, uh, start of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. The ability of A. Philip Randolph to actually gain a national audience um, and that carried through, he began to be a fairly regular speaker at major um, meetings of the NAACP and the um, and even the AFL. And so one of the key things that changed between 1928 and 1935 is that the AFL began, they refused to admit the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters as a union in their federation. But what they encouraged was for locals, local affiliates of the Brotherhood to organize separately and apply for admission into the AFL. And so you began to get Brotherhood membership in the American Federation of Labor. And so you see cracks in that rule about no black members in the AFL. So this is between 18, 1928 and 19. 34. And then in 1935, um, the wall breaks down. Um, Randolph, um, working together with um, uh, Walter White of the NAACP, they organized a picket of the American Federation of Labor Convention in San Francisco. Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters is very strong in the, in the Oakland area. And by the way, so is the um, Dining Car Workers Union that began to emerge in this period. And so they picketed the convention. Uh, in that convention, there was a walkout 
when the AFL leadership refused to organize, to recognize the, um, the demands of the locals that were trying to organize along industrial lines, and they actually kicked them out of the convention and the, um, the locals that left, the um, industrially inclined um, unions, reorganized as the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. 1935, and um, that desertion, ironically, strengthened the opportunity for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters to apply for admission, because they're like, hey, we're a guild, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll join your union, and we have, it's a craft union, and so they were admitted to the AFL. AFL sees the handwriting on the wall, and they bring the Brotherhood in, and that was, that was the breakthrough. And the Pullman Company dug in their hills, and then in 1937, they suddenly said, we'll sign. And you have first all-black union to ever sign a collective bargaining agreement with a corporation. Yeah. Wow. So I think that might have answered okay. that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, let's move on to our, our next question. Can you please tell us about your, your book? discussed in the book a wide range of topics relating to race, gender, labor organization, and civil rights. How did you first become interested in this topic? So, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, I didn't actually set out to do this book. <laughs> um, but sometimes a topic kind of seizes you and won't let you go, you know. So, I was really interested, as I mentioned earlier, in um, labor history and especially farm labor history. So I was really interested, you know, what is it um, that motivates people to take the path of labor intensive work versus machine intensive? What motivates them to go to a higher labor force versus a family labor force? Um, so that was, that was where it started. And I kept running up against this problem that people told me, you know, you can't get inside the minds of people. And I was kind of stuck, and I was on a sabbatical, and uh, I was called in for jury duty. And on that jury duty, there was a young black man, um, college-age kid, about 19, 20 years old. And he was being tried for what became apparent was going to qualify for a conviction under the three strikes law, which would mean a fairly serious penalty. And it was a case involving charges of drunk driving and evasion of a police officer and things like that. So I won't go into the details of the case, but what happened was in the jury room, there were 12 of us, all white. The only black face in the whole courtroom was this defendant. So the, the jurors in the room with me, that still pisses me off. I mean, is, uh, I've been on four juries and this is the only one where I really lost. And so I was trying to convince these other jurors, you know, of what the problem was. And what it really boiled down to was, did you believe the cop or not? Again, without getting into the details of it. And at some point, the cop in the um, presentation of his case was asked, you know, why did you pull this kid over in, in the first place? Um, and by the way, the kid was literally driving one block. <laughs> he drove from his girlfriend's house to his mother's house, one block. And uh, why'd you pull him over? And he was... And he said, well, I saw his black face, and I knew him, and I knew he was up to no good. So we were not allowed to know what the record was of this kid, but um, uh, but basically he was home from college visiting his girlfriend, and they, 
went to a party and he had a little bit too much to drink and he drove the car home and he shouldn't have. So they're going to send him up the river for a long time for that. So I argued with these guys and it kept coming up in the jury room, you know, that, you know, the cops said, this is what he did. And, and um, finally one of the jurors, um, we were kind of deadlocked because I had two people in the jury on my side. There was a young woman on that jury with me who was on my side initially and they pulled her aside and they worked on her and they got her to change her vote. And uh, so I realized that in a jury room, and in a jury decision, um, you gain insights into what people are actually thinking. I learned a lot about the people in that jury room that day. And um, so I thought, well, you know, if I could just find a case um, that involved race, that involved rural farmers on the jury, that maybe I could gain insight into the way they thought about race in this period when there was few people of any other race in the neighborhood. And so what do people there think about race? These white farmers. And, and so I, I had a grad student, Derek Phillips, not a grad student, he was a graduate of my program. And, I, and so I asked him to start dig, digging through papers and look for cases involving, I didn't give him any guidelines except someone of a different race <laughs> um, than the jurors. Um, who's brought up on some kind of significant charge where it has to go to a jury. Um, and I want to dig into that case. And so uh, there's one with this young man from Los Angeles, from South Central. You know, I started digging into it. So I started asking the questions, you know, we're trying to track down, you know, what, what I could find out about this guy. And um, that's where the, that was the beginnings of the book. So you, um, when, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned uh, like as you were putting the book together you uh, you went to various places to find the the details of, of this case uh, and what was the, the gentleman's name that that the book was um, oh, Robert Robert folks is the is the young man who is accused of the murder and um, who I was born in Arkansas um, he moved to South Central at the age of nine with his mother um, and started working. He was only 20, barely 20 years old when he was arrested. He'd already been working full time for about seven years by that point. And then at some point I realized that you guys had this file on the murder in your, um, I think the Southern Pacific records that you have there. And um, so I, because the murder happened on a Southern Pacific Railroad train on a dining car, which is run by the Southern Pacific, not the Pullman Company. So you guys have in your archives, librarians help me find it, but you have like the original interview notes that police made when they were interviewing witnesses on this train, working with the folks at the Newberry Library, which has the um, Pullman Palace car records, I got their case files, which um, meshed really well with the ones you guys had. It's always hard to reconstruct exactly how you come up with this information, but um, what I wound up with was a much more complete record that, than anybody in that jury ever had. I had access to information they didn't have, and I had the um, ability to spend literally a year mulling through this stuff um, 
when they had 17 hours and I had the written records and they had to go strictly by memory, except for the one thing they had with them in the jury room, which they, everybody agreed they should not have had, including the Oregon State Supreme Court, was the so-called confession that from all appearances was simply a piece of paper that was written down by the interrogating police officers that folks never signed and claimed he never made. And so when I wrote the book and then went through the various editing processes to eventually get it published, um, I was able to think things through in a way that nobody on that jury would have been able to do. Um, and I, re I reached an interesting conclusion actually. Um, and that was that anybody who was on that jury who sat through that proceeding and had the instructions from the judge in front of them and had that confession in front of them would have had a very hard time convincing other people in the jury not to convict, even if they had doubts, which they should have. Anybody in that room should have had doubts, but convincing other people who were determined to convict. And if you've ever listened to, if you've ever been part of a jury deliberation and you've listened to the authoritative voice that police have in that room and the assumption that they're honest that jurors tend to have, it's really hard to get over that. Um, my conclusion actually was that it was actually really difficult to tell exactly what the racial attitudes were on that jury from their voice. Um, but it is interesting that, um, so, so what I found was that a uh, jury that was made up mostly of armed women, because it's World War II. And so, by the way, this is the first jury in Oregon history that women were allowed to serve on in a capital case. Um, and uh, that jury of white, mostly white farm women, there was, I think, four men on the jury um, found them guilty. So I would have had a hard time, I think. Myself, if I was on the jury, because I probably would have been arguing, but I think I would have had a very hard time convincing them. To... Oh, I, I want to thank you for sharing uh, Fultz's story and and your personal story, um, and, and your road to writing that book. Thank you again, Dr. Geyer. We appreciate your time. If you're interested in reading Dr. Geyer's book, The Color of the Night, Race, Railroaders, and Murder in the Wartime West, you can purchase his book on Amazon or from the Oregon State University Press. Thanks for listening to Roundhouse Crosstalk's podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share, like, and subscribe. Tune in next week for our second episode. Dr. Natalia Fernandez, the Interim Director of the Special Collections and Archives Research Center at Oregon State University, will join us to discuss the oral history collection of Black railroad workers. This episode was created and produced by Jason Rankins, Jake Jennerjohn, Audrey Lockdiff, and Hannah Phillips. This has been Roundhouse Crosstalks at the California State Railroad Museum. See you all next time.